Welcome to Below the Line, where we talk about working in Hollywood from the crew perspective. My name is Skid. I'm a former assistant director and your host. Today is Veterans Day, and in honor of the holiday, I've once again invited a panel of Air Force combat camera veterans to share stories from their time in uniform. As longtime listeners know, I'm also a combat camera veteran, and my guests are fellow service members I worked with when I was stationed at Vandenberg Air Force Base, California. Jim Staten, you served 22 years in the Air Force and retired as a Master Sergeant. Welcome back to Below the Line. Thanks, Rob. <laughs> Glad you're here, Jim. Also returning to the show, Fred Johnson, you served seven and a half years, separated from the Air Force as a senior airman, and now you're a photographer, a Silicon Valley entrepreneur, and the founder of ThisWeekInPhoto.com. Welcome back. Thanks, Rob. Good to be here. I mean, LT, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, joining us for the first time, J.R. Cole. You served 28 years in the Air Force and retired as the chief of the 1st Combat Camera Squadron. Welcome. Thank you, and, and I'm glad to be here with you guys, some of the greatest guys I've ever been with. <laughs> JR, we'll see if the stories you tell today back that up. For myself, I served five years in the Air Force, three years at Vandenberg, and two years in D.C., and separated as a captain. As they've already indicated, my guests today do not know me as Skid, and are likely to call me LT or Rob during our conversation. Are there any other nicknames I need to mention up front, guys, that you guys are going to wheel out here? None, none that I could say on this recording. <laughs> <laughs> you were the boss of us, remember? So. <laughs> yeah, and now I'm, and now I'm not. This is the consequences. <laughs> One last note before we get started: today would have been my dad's 79th birthday, if not for COVID, which took him from us last year, just before Christmas. My dad loved the movies and was very supportive of my work in the industry. He was also a 30-year Army veteran, and he both inspired my own military service and informs my engagement with military issues to this day. Okay, we're going to dive right into this. For listeners who would like to first learn more about the history of Combat Camera, I recommend you visit usafcombatcamera.org backslash history. They've got a lot of stories there, and it's going to be very informative. We're not going to spend a lot of time with that. Also, if you haven't listened already, you might also enjoy last year's podcast, which was Season 6, Episode 10. That episode, we focused on our time together at Vandenberg Air Force Base. We're going to pick up with some of that today and see where it goes. So, gentlemen, let's talk about what combat camera was like when you guys joined in. I'm probably the oldest head. Yes. <laughs> I joined the Air Force in 1973, right at the end of the Vietnam War. And there had been a lot of focus on combat camera at that time. So there were a lot of people in the audiovisual services throughout the Air Force, and they were busy kind of trying to pare it down. And uh, the speed graphics 4x5 camera uh, was still in use, although it did have electronic flashes rather than bulbs. Color was new to the military, getting it done uh, in-house rather than farming it out to Kodak. And that's about it. I got to watch the technology move all the way before my retirement to sending imagery through satellites. From having couriers that traveled the world, we were now transmitting by satellites when I retired. Hey, I came in a little bit later than he did. I came in the Air Force in 83, but I didn't get into the combat camera until 91. When I came in 91, it was just after the Gulf War, and digital technology was taken off on the still side. Video was still very much three-quarter inch to one inch, and we were carrying multiple uh, recorder plus a cable between us to the handheld camera portion of it. 
we used to tease the uh, photographers because they had to run all over the place trying to find, you know, a place to do their film because they wanted to go digital, but it wasn't, it wasn't quality enough. The first cameras we used in the Desert Storm was uh, digital that they tried to use became doorstops because they just really weren't capable of getting the quality that, you know, they want on digital media. So, JR, what did you do when you came into the Air Force? Why came into the camera stuff uh, later? <laughs> I came in as a cable dog. And to give you a perspective of that, when I first came in, I, I told them I wanted electronics. And they said, okay, well, you can do electronics. You scored high enough. And I said, good. So I got electronics. They told me, he says, you're going to be a cable splicer. I said, what is that? And they said, well, basically a cable splicer is you're going to uh, wire airplanes. And I'm like, cool. So that sounds interesting. I'll do that. Then when I got to basic training, they made me climb a 90-foot pole and jump around with the, with the harness on and understand what that had to do with an airplane. But uh, <laughs> then, then they told me, no, you're more like power pro. You're going to be climbing up and hooking up electricity. It's not what I wanted. I want to be on an airplane, but, you know, I'll go with that. And then when I got into, uh, after basic training, got to my tech school at Shepard Air Force Base, I was actually a telephone guy. They slapped it down in front of me and said, these are the wires that connect communication. So my career, for the most part, until the last probably four years, was all under communication. Uh, even when we were Avis, I just barely nipped Avis as I went into communications again under the comm squadron. And this is a really funny story because photography was not my repertoire or anything I ever thought of. But when I went to go uh, cross-train because I had a bad knee, they told me we're going to give you a chance to reclassify because of your medical issue. I said, all right, I can't climb telephone poles anymore. What do you got? They said, you got your top three choices. So as I was going through a book, because it was not computers at that time, it was a book. So <laughs> I'm reading different things that, that it matched the area that I could cross-train in. And I decided that I would try for it uh, because I was an instructor in communications, fiber optics at Shepard Air Force Base for six years. I wanted to be an instructor. So I tried to do the altitude chamber. They said, no, I couldn't do that because I had allergies. They told me I couldn't, uh, I could do the rest of everything I picked. It'd be a long story short, aircraft sheet metal was my third choice. So basically when the, the pages stuck together, when I flipped it over, it was combat camera was the number I wrote down. I had no clue. So when I'm waiting to find out what my job was, they came back and told me, he says, you got your third choice. I'm like, great, I'll be an aircraft sheet metal. They said, no, you're going to be combat camera because it had a bonus. And your last job had a bonus. And they kind of matched that up. I said, what is a combat camera? <laughs> they said, well, it's, you, you take pictures, you'll, you'll be happy. Um, little did they say with my great knee that I was running with a 50-pound camera through fields and stuff and doing all the stuff that we had to do. I'm not sure it was the best medical decision for me, but it ended up being the best decision I backed up into. Now, for all you guys in starting out, do they decide early who's going to be a still photographer, which is what Jim, Fred, you guys did, and who's going to be a videographer, JR, which is what you were doing, at least when we were working together. Actually, my initial job was continuous film processing for reconnaissance. That was my school. And they were combining the career fields of processing and photography and spinning off reconnaissance processing into another, another section. And I was the only one out of a class of 11 that got sent to a base photo lab 
everybody else got sent to fighter jets with the reconnaissance capabilities. And uh, I got sent to a photo lab at Vandenberg. You apply for the job and processing and still photography end up merging later. And it, it has grown even since then. I mean, Fred even tapped into the electronic imaging and, and the EIC and all that, which was just the start of combining everything. Today, it's all one career field. There's no longer videographers, still photographers. It's all one career field. You have to learn it underneath the PA umbrella. But, you know, you have to you have to learn how to do all of it. And that's a big change from when we were in as well. While we were there, I know audiovisual, as you alluded to earlier, JR, got merged under communications. And now, but we were still operational and worked on the operational side of the house. But now apparently, and again, I'm not following it too closely, but all of it went under public affairs. Combat camera is still operation. It's still the combat camera mission here at Charleston Air Force Base and our subunits are the UTCs out of Hill and, and Lackland. Vandenberg is no longer within that, that realm. But basically, they still they still do the operation job, but it's underneath the PA umbrella. So instead of going to uh, COM operational sections through AMC, we go back to the uh, Air Force level, which can be a problem because when you had a problem with uh, like a, an airman that messed up and you go to have a court-martial, we found out very shortly that there's only two spots and we were at the air staff and the chief of staff had to be the one to make the decision over and he just wasn't going to do that, you know, being at that level. So you're like going, okay, we have to tie it to the base. So at least for disciplinary actions versus, you know, it was a lot, it was a lot of learning processes when we went underneath public affairs at the air staff level. I'm kind of curious with Fred, how did he get into uh, photography first he was the only guy that was working for me in photojournalism that didn't have his college certificate yeah all my photographers had been to syracuse yeah except for fred yeah and, and i was the best he, he was he was just this guy <laughs> over in the over in the corner who played in photoshop and occasionally went out and took pictures yeah it was kind of, it was kind of like that yeah my the way just to continue that thread of origin stories into the audiovisual stuff when I signed up for the military, I had no idea what what I was going to be. I was I went through Lackland. You know how you get to that point where they're like, "Hey, you're going to Thule, Greenland, and you're going to so and so." Whatever you know, we we're at that point, and my orders came into Minot, North Dakota. <laughs> so <laughs> that was going to be my first base, and I'm from Chicago. You know, Southside kid from Chicago. I was like. I don't care. It's new. Everything's going to be an adventure to me. That sounds great, right? Two years, whatever, right? So the people that knew what Minot was, you know, it was frigid and cold and desolate up there. were like, oh, you're going to Minot? Sorry to hear that, man. Blah, 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 blah. I'm like, whatever. And then two days later, I got diverted. And they're like, oh, your orders got diverted. They, you're, going, you're going someplace else. And I'm like, where am I going? Uh, Yakota Air Base, Japan. <laughs> So, uh, so I go from, you know, the middle, the moon, basically, to, you know, a metropolitan city. And then I got there, you know, I went straight, like you said, Jim, I went straight from basic. This is very little or no college, right? So I went straight from basic training, essentially, to after a two week, you know, goodbye, everybody, get your affairs in order, stay at home to Yakota. I didn't go to, uh, what do they call it back then? That's you school. Go to the 
Yeah, tech school. Thank you. I did, there was no tech school because I guess it was full or what, for whatever reasons, needs of the military. I didn't go to tech school. I got CDCs. So I get there and I get this, remember pre-internet, right? So I get this stack of loose leaf books, <laughs> five of them, you know, that I was supposed to go through. I went through the first ones and then I, they were like, I forget who it was, but uh, they were like, go, get through this first one, then we'll get you your equipment. And the first one was all about theory and light and shadow and all this other stuff. So I was I was digging it. I loved it. I was like, holy, this is awesome. This is where I'm supposed to be. This is perfect. So I get through that and they're like, okay, now we're going to give you your gear. Here's the equipment locker about a month later. So open this amazing gear locker with every lens known to man and all these Nikon FM2s and F3s and all this stuff in there. Pick two camera bodies and lenses and build your bag. And from there, I was hooked. We're in 2021 now. That was just to timestamp the era. I went in in 1989. That was 1989 that that happened. And we're in 2021. And I'm still as in love with photography as I was going through those CDC books. So it's crazy. That is crazy. The way it changed during that time period was ridiculous. Yeah. It's like you could not have been behind, even though the fact that you didn't have all the schools or even Syracuse or any of those things, it was so forefront that you were growing with it because film photography obviously is different than digital photography. And I and I knew that from video. Video was totally different the way you looked at an image versus a film image. I we used to joke with the photographers, I can look back at my video right when I did it going, <laughs> this is what I did today. What? Oh, wait a minute, you got film. Yeah, you want me to pull it out? No, you can't. All right, yeah. And they wouldn't get it till later. Then obviously when they went digital, they killed us for a long time because they could get front page news. It was so much smaller than video. It took us a while to catch up. Actually, it took us to the second golf war to even get to that point. Yeah, just to look at the changes over the years, it's crazy. I don't know I'm going to put rings on my tree saying this, but you look at the state of the art cameras that we had back then. Even at Jim, even at Vandenberg, I think we had we were shooting with the the DCS 420s Kodak. There was like a a Kodak Nikon Frankenstein hybrid camera that I you remember we had to figure out because they kept dying we had to figure out how to make it last for more than a couple hours so we raided some video battery belts from the video guys and <laughs> hooked them up <laughs> we might not have even asked <laughs> <laughs> so we're walking around like batman with this battery belt with a cable plugged into this frankenstein unit creating you know what was it barely one megapixel shots and we were still like holy crap this is the future right <laughs> now we have iphones that can shoot edit transmit and shoot ridiculous quality video and focus after the fact and all that crazy stuff oh the iphone's ridiculous now there's something i miss about putting a uh, kodachrome into the nikon and going out and evaluating a scene and deciding the exposure not based on what the camera's telling me to take, but based on my experience of shooting it for so many years and saying, this is how I'm going to get this image. Um, where the camera, the only involvement is I'm telling it what to do and I'm pushing the button. Now, you know, there's some wonderful photography that, that's being made. I mean, you see it all over the internet, but I would say most people don't know how they got the photo. That's interesting though. You put, you, you know, we talk about this on my, my little podcast all the time is, does that matter? The folks like us that, that understand the exposure triangle, f-stop, shutter speed, ISO, and composition, and lighting, and all, we understand that stuff, and 
we had to kind of walk over the hot coals of shooting film and having it come out black, kind of understanding that flow. And now we got it. Okay, I, I can consider myself competent at this art form of photography. And now maybe I can proceed to storytelling because I got the, <laughs> I got the fundamentals down. Now I got to figure out if I have a story to tell and what my genre is and all that stuff. But today you, you fast forward all of that with a purchase. You can buy all that AI and smarts in a camera so the question is, does it matter that you have the mechanics and you understand the speed of light and what a silver halide is and all that, if the end result is all you want to do is tell this compelling story about this thing that's important to you and the device represents the path of least resistance to that? I don't know. I mean, it's like, do you, oh, in my day, we used to take a horse to go and milk cows and now you could just go to the store and buy milk. Is it better? <laughs> I don't disagree, but you still... Like if you bring lights into the situation, you yes, still yeah. have to know how to handle your lights. You still have to yes. understand lighting ratios and things. The camera's not doing that for probably another three, four years. <laughs> <laughs> True. But I, I will tell you that I still do training videos and stuff at Boeing. And I had a PJ. This is Russ Cooley. And Russ works for me. And he is Syracuse, graduated, and has covers of several magazines, you know, during his time in. And I said, look, we're going to start doing training videos and we're going to use photos as well. I want you to buy us gear. I didn't really tell him what to do. He got me a nice bag. It was like, you know, a, a good bag for my camera. And I was waiting for it to come in. And when I picked it up, my camera was about this big. This big being about uh, six inches is what you're indicating yes. as far as the size and of the it, camera. And I was like, what is that? He goes, that's your video camera. I'm like, what does it do? He goes, it does video. He goes, well, look bigger in the magazine. <laughs> and he gave me a flashcard to put in it. And let me tell you, it's a Canon. And that camera really knocks it out of the park. It does what, what my $50,000 Betacam didn't do in the, in the old days. The biggest thing from training to what they're doing today is telling the story. Once you get the confidence with your camera gear to tell a story, then you've stepped into a different level of photography. Yeah, and that's the scary part, I think. And that's the, I mean, it's, I'm still learning this and it, it, it's taken me years to kind of internalize the separation of church and state, right? Where church is the technical and being competent, like Jim says, understanding lighting and, and how to make sure that, you know, what makes a pleasing photograph, whether it's whatever genre you're dealing in. So all that technical stuff and under being proficient at that. And then the state side of that is the story and being able to tell a story, a compelling story, because no one cares. It's unless other, it's another photographer. No one cares how you did it. It's the story right at the end of the day. So in, I think a lot of photographers that I talk to, especially beginning photographers, get stuck in this eddy of gear right it's like okay my camera does this i can do this or i need this one because it can do that blah 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 you know and that becomes the hobby it's not about the photography it's literally about i want to buy the next camera what are you shooting with oh it's the fuji this or it's the canon that or it's the panasonic whatever and the work doesn't support the amount of gear or the stories that they're supposed to be telling with this mountain of gear that we can all appreciate we never had access to and they have it in a closet they can't tell stories with this stuff because they're stuck in that eddy of stuff and gear and technique and watching youtube videos about how to do this and that and they never really get to the point of 
this is the story I need to tell. I'm compelled to tell this story about X. Now I need to back solve that and get the gear that lets me tell that story. They're like Batman building the ultimate Batcave without knowing what crimes they're going to fight, right? <laughs> you know, as someone who watches Air Force photography, two things that I noticed, JR may, may know about one. First, I watched an aerial photographer get in the back of an F-16 with about 10 yards of black material, like cotton sheets, where he covered the entire inside of the cockpit with this black material and taped it down with black gaffer tape so he wouldn't get reflections in the curved canopy. Because when you're shooting out of the jet, because the canopy's curved, everything reflects into that. And I just thought, where along the line did they lose the fact that we used to put a piece of black foam over the front of the camera, put it up next to the glass, and that would suck all the light out of the glass, and there were no reflections. You didn't have to turn it into a big upside-down tent. Yeah. One other thing, too. After 9-11, there was a big toss-up. Uh, I can't remember if it was Air Force One flew in front of the Statue of Liberty and uh, scared everybody. They took pictures from an F-16. This is uh, right after President Obama came into office in 2008. So, Jim, I thought you said 9-11. Wait, I'm confused about no, what... You no, know, what it did was people were trying to compare it. To 9-11. They were scared. To 9-11 because there's this big airplane down at, I don't know, 800, 1,000 feet, yeah. uh, 1,200 feet, whatever it was, this big airplane. And they're saying that nobody notified the citizens. They look up and they see this big 747 coming down the river. Right. Um, Here we go again. With that right. around it. Yeah, and, it, was, uh, it was right in the, in the beginning of the Obama administration when we did that. And it was to reenact the uh, Ken Hackman photo over Mount Rushmore. That is still probably the official photo. So the photographer had the rails. He was It was supposedly an official photo mission. But whoever done it had never done a photo mission before because the rail of the canopy was in the bottom of the picture. He, he didn't even get the plane to, to tilt on its side or, or anything. It was... Uh, it had the rails in it, and I wonder, it's like the knowledge that we developed through the years in the old manual days went sideways with the automated systems. They lost track of something somewhere. Well, I, I can comment on that, actually, because I was I knew it. during that time. And the photographer you mentioned is one of the top photographers in the Air Force that came out, Andy Dunaway. Oh, I Andy. And when Andy Dunaway did that shot, we went there and they had hounded me when I was over to comm squadron at Andrews about my contacts to combat camera wanting to redo that shoot. I went from Andrews to Italy and then I became the chief of combat camera. So I knew the people at the PAG that wanted that shoot. It was requested. We didn't walk out one day and go, oh, let's go shoot Air Force One. And oh, no, you can't do out. that. Doesn't <laughs> So mm -hmm. we set that shoot up, and um, I had a photographer in Air Force One. It was a training mission. A training mission, by the way, that had to happen. It was going to happen anyway. All they did was come down from their training mission for the shot with the F-16. It cost nothing. So if you saw the news outlet, it was a $350,000 shot. Uh, why do we waste money? And I had people tell me stuff uh, that made me lose my mind. Like, if you want a photo shot like that, you need to get in the helicopter and shoot it going by. And I'm <laughs> screaming in Alabama, by the way, uh, as I'm being yelled at. And by the way, Jim, that those photos, the actual photos were never released. Okay. Wow. Because uh, um, I just saw the rail in there and I thought that yeah, those were locked down and they were never edited. They weren't allowed to be touched. 
we had to turn them over, and so they were never finished. Uh, apologies to Andy. It, <laughs> it, it got ugly, and uh, um, I was extremely busy that time because it was it was a simple shot that the news media, and it was really funny because they would tell you, nobody knew we were going to do this, and we shocked everybody. But if you know anything about AFA, you cannot drop down certain feet without letting the area know. You can't do that without letting the mayor of New York know. You cannot do this without the White House knowing because you got their plane. You cannot do this without yep. AMC knowing. Because There's a lot, of, a lot of coordination involved. Yes, and all this stuff was done, but nobody knew how it was done. Now, I felt really bad for the one guy in the Obama administration that got fired for it. I think he was just the guy down the line that got done. You know, but nothing was not covered in that whole mission. You don't even get another plane next to Air Force One without permission. Oh, no. Yeah. So that was, a, that was a crazy thing, but it even gave you the idea. If you ever try to shoot a jet from a hovering helicopter, you're going to get, and you're going to go, what was that? <laughs> even with the high-speed cameras we got today, you couldn't have got that. No. But um, that's, that's where all that went. And believe me, I got, I got cussed out from all kinds of stars telling me about who uh, did I think I was or my commander, who was Lieutenant Colonel P.A., she got yelled at way more than I did. I just stepped back and was just mad that this was even at that level. Well, tell me some more stories about getting yelled at. That's probably a good segue into, you know, a little oh. more color on your careers. <laughs> Without the backstory, when I was running a, when first running the, com, the communication squadron, I was in England. I had a combat camera unit. We merged with the squadron. And, and there had been some stuff that had happened earlier in the day um, that got a lot of uh, senior staff upset although I, I think they were playing they were more upset with my boss than they were with actually with what had happened we had this little vertically challenged major that was in charge of the squadron <laughs> he, had, he had he had come out of administration somewhere and they gave him a whole comm squadron to run he wasn't doing very well at it but the blame was had to fall on somebody he called me in his office kept me at attention in front of his desk and chewed on me for about five minutes and and then threw me out of the office and I walk out and there's all these lieutenants and skid, you'll know what lieutenants are. They're all standing <laughs> around with concern on their faces. And I'm trying to stifle a laugh and they're like, are you okay? And I'm like, man, I've had my butt chewed by professionals. This guy doesn't even come close. <laughs> <laughs> I got actually chewed out pretty good because of Fred. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> Fred did some training when he was trying to think about, I think he was going to Yahoo or something at that time, yeah, when he was yeah. looking at getting out. And I just happened to, to be around when I heard that Ken Wright had did Syracuse or whatever, that, that PJ course, and he didn't sign any paperwork. So I overheard that. And then they said, well, he got the training and punts. So Fred was in the middle of contemplating what he was going to do because he just did some like EIC training or something. Uh-huh. And we were talking about it. I'm like, well, did you sign anything? He goes, no. You didn't put anything that you were going to do? No. I said, hi. You don't got to give that back. Because I know Ken Wright just did that. And Fred went, hmm. Yeah, that got back to, was it Major Mac? I think I got in trouble. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I got wow. in trouble for, for giving that information out. Matter of fact, when wow. he got the job, I made him come back and uh, entertain me for a night at Vandenberg one night. <laughs> <laughs> I got chewed out pretty good. 
You know, when I when I separated, it was interesting. Who was the who was the base commander at Vandenberg? Driz, was it Drizmala or Drizmala, Drizmala was over the comm squadron? Okay, he would have been there with you. I remember because I needed to get out early, right? Because right. I needed to take this job in Silicon Valley, and I needed to get out. What was it? Six months early or a yeah, couple it weeks? Was, it, it wasn't was, that it much. Was, it was close. It was close. So I had to write a letter, a why, and explain myself and the impact to my family versus the needs of the air, you know, all this stuff. So I wrote that. And I remember going to his office and, and he was, uh, or whoever it was, my memory's foggy on this. I remember having this discussion about getting my paperwork signed, my early release paperwork signed. And the the conversation basically went like, are you sure you want to do this? Because you're at the halfway point. You could stay in, do your 20 and blah, 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 you know. And then me, I'm already like, do I really want to do this? You know, but Silicon Valley, I feel like it's going to be a thing. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I end up getting out and he said, you know what? I think you're making a foolish mistake by separating from the Air Force right now. So we're going to set your separation date as April 1st. <laughs> it's still up there. April 1st on the wall. <laughs> it's why my discharge date from the Air Force is officially April Fool's Day because, right. you know, of reasons. <laughs> I don't remember Dresmala being that funny. Yeah. Well, I, didn't think, I didn't think it was that funny. Yeah. <laughs> I came into the squadron and uh, Vandenberg came in from Korea, asked to come into Vandenberg by... Uh, I think the DO then Captain Moore or uh, Major Moore, when she was there, she she had reached out to me in uh, Korea and said, "Hey, I really would like to get you here because we this is your type of world." And she worked it, and I literally changed my assignment from Wright Pat to Vandenberg. And so when I got to Vandenberg, I walked into Drizmala's office. He welcomed me, and, and Colonel Drizmala looked at me and went, "Okay, you'll be in the dorm." I said, "Oh, uh, excuse me," because you'll be in the dorm. I said. I'm a staff sergeant with uh, divorced with kids and household. He goes, don't care. You'll be in the dorm. <laughs> and I went, so I had to go to base housing and to the, the commander of the base with the plea that they're going to have to pay for my storage because I had furniture that, you know, stored. I got kids. I get six months out of the year. And when I went back in, he never apologized when they told him, no, you can't do that. He goes, fine we'll let this happen right now we'll see if i'm gonna let it stay and i'm like going i still got kids that are coming six months out of the year we'll see he, how long those kids last yeah it was like he would never give back he never backed down it was just like going wow i had never met a guy like drisma i don't know if you remember skid fred had already left but the day i got fired because i was the superintendent Ooh, i want to hear this yeah i didn't know that yeah yeah, you'll remember when I tell you, Dresmala fired me because of a something to do with a video for the base. They, they wanted that Guardian Challenge video converted over to the welcome video into the base. The, the senior enlisted advisor for the base kept asking me for it, and I just kept putting him off because I had a lot on my plate, and that was that really wasn't my purview. But because somehow I had become the point man, and he didn't get it, he complained to Dresmala, and Dresmala fired me. I didn't move from my desk. I didn't have any duties relieved from me. I just lost the title. I still had mm -hmm. the job. I remember that. And the best part was literally the day he fired me, we had a, a banquet that was going on at the club that I had put together a slideshow for. 
and I was down setting up the uh, equipment in the afternoon uh, before the evening dinner. And Drizmala comes walking in and he starts pointing at the equipment saying, I think this is this, I think this is this. And he knew what everything was, which really surprised me because, you know, it's kind of high end equipment. Then he looks over at me, he says, uh, where are you sitting tonight for dinner? And I said, I really don't know. He says, I'd like you to sit at my table. And I'm like, oh, God. And the only time in my life I ever really stood up to the man, I just looked at him and I said, I figured I was ostracized. And the uh, only time I ever saw him smile. And he turned around and walked off. And I sat at his table at dinner that night. Nice. <laughs> nice. I do remember that. And the problem was the uh, enlist advisor got really ticked off. The videos that he wanted showed airmen drinking alcohol and people drinking alcohol. And we looked at it and refused to give it because that was underneath the Air Force regulation. You know, to me, you cannot show that. The airman had told him, which you protected, I think, was Kenyon. But the, when you told him that he told you that he couldn't do it, he told him no. And he got mad because he was told no. He wanted to, I think we ended up giving the footage, but he couldn't use it. It was not released footage. You couldn't use it because it showed alcohol consumption. Andrews Mollet wanted a head, so he took mine. But it was funny because nothing changed. I had to write myself a letter reprimanding. I was going to say, I don't remember you leaving <laughs> or doing anything different. The best part was McAllister told Chris that he needed to write me a letter of reprimand. Chris Sonor, our civilian oversight, or yeah. some other Chris? Yeah, Chris Sonor. So uh, since he was busy, I went ahead and wrote my own letter of reprimand. And uh, <laughs> gave it to McAllister to deliver to me. And, he, and he's like, man, this is really rough. You can't do this. <laughs> <laughs> and I just thought, if I had had to write a letter of reprimand to anybody else, that's how I would have written it. So I just wrote on mine. And it went into a drawer somewhere. And nothing changed, except that I lost my title. Well, you know, when you guys talk about these stories about, you know, some of your run-ins with authority, it, it makes me wonder, on one side, you have this creative art form that requires a certain amount of independent thinking in order to realize the product. And on the other hand, you have the way the military is structured, which doesn't always necessarily support that independent thinking. Do you guys think that was a general tension in the combat camera field throughout your careers? Or do you think these are just sort of isolated incidents that could be anywhere in the military. When we went underneath COM, the communications squadron, I gave a briefing to the communications commander showing him all of our stats, training, budget, all that stuff. And the last thing I told him was, we, we take people, we push them, they're artistic, we push them, we push them forward, we get them promoted and everything, and suddenly they're in charge and they, they have no logical sense of sort. They're really based out of uh, artistic side of their brain. And you're going to have problems with that. Fortunately, he was understood. Well, I also saw that we got lieutenants like every other week as we were losing VI officers. A lot of times they didn't get trained as we went to comm officers. So you had these people that had no idea, you know, about the job and they were put in charge. So that, you know, you, you were there as, as you went through it. I think, LT, you were one of the last ones that were VI when you started getting after Malzone and, and, and it was all comm officers. They could fix my computer beautifully. So when my computer didn't work, they would fix it. I'm like, yeah, but they didn't know what the actual job was. Mm. So yeah, I came in as a visual information officer, but you're right, before I got out of the military, uh, they had merged us in with comm more generically, which included all the telephones and computers and 
one of the big reasons I got out was because my next job was probably going to be telephones or something more generic. But I didn't have any special visual information training from the military. There was a focus on being producer directors and an emphasis on developing those skills. And we had civilians, you mentioned Chris and Orr, but other uh, folks who were there full-time as producer directors that we learned from uh, with the idea of that was the important part of the job. You were lucky enough to end up in an assignment where you had people that could mentor because if you just ended up on Joe Bag of Donuts base out in the middle of Wyoming, you would have been in charge. <laughs> God help them. I, I told a guy one time, uh, a boss that had no idea what audiovisual was all about. He says, I really like what you're doing. Just keep doing it. And I said, and I want you to know, I like what I'm doing. And you'll never hear anything as long as we're doing it right. But let one little thing go wrong and you will feel the weight of the command section on your shoulders because it, they're the ones who it's going to affect. Looking at this, this is fascinating. Looking at this from my perspective, which is the airman perspective, kind of the pawn on the chessboard. <laughs> you know, I was a pawn on the chessboard. You guys are moving around and telling to do stuff. But, you know, and I got to, you know, take a second to thank Jim, you know, for giving me the latitude to do stuff. Right. Because you mentioned the whole, you know, put me in the corner and do Photoshop and that kind of I, I'm still doing that stuff to the, to this day, decades later, because that was what I gravitated towards. You had the, I think you had the foresight or wherewithal to say, hey, you're you like doing this stuff and you're pretty good at it. So go over there and make these Guardian Challenge posters. It really wasn't putting you in a corner. We were really putting you on the forefront. In the corner with the Mac, right? Like just do making cool stuff. I was a pig in crap, right? So I'm sitting over there learning Photoshop. I remember back then it was Photoshop version two or something like pre-layers. And I remember just trying to figure stuff out. How do you do this? And I still have some of that work. And looking back on it, you know, by today's standards, it was crap. But Back then, it was magic, right? Oh, and then yeah. we got that big poster printer, and we're printing stuff out. It was crazy. Back in those days, when LT was running teams, his biggest asset for most of the other lieutenants was his coordination. Because when he would coordinate a team, you know, either being the, the lead camera or whatever, you didn't think about that. He would organize everything all the way out. Yeah, detailed. Some of the lieutenants would not do that. And so you were like going... How are we getting from the airport? Uh, I didn't really think about that. You're landing and you have rental cars and everything set up. So coordination-wise was awesome. Yeah. He, the lieutenant, is me, you mean? You guys are talking about yes, me. I'm sitting right, right here. But somebody, sorry. You, the lieutenant. Um, I had, we always I talk about you third person. <laughs> I had lieutenants at Vandenberg after you that literally I was doing IG videos. And he would be upset because the IG would come into the gym where we were editing and the 06 would walk up and talk to me, the staff sergeant. And he'd come up running up to me, the butter bar lieutenant going, why do you want to talk to me? I'm like, because you're with the kids. I'm <laughs> over here working. <laughs> what does that mean? Never mind. <laughs> I have to get this done. I remember walking out on the floor of the hangar one day where they kept all the tracking mounts out of the weather tracking cameras. Skid had about literally 15 or 18 young enlisted guys standing around and a whole bunch of flat, empty pallets. You load the equipment on them and then push them up on the aircraft. And he was trying to figure out if we did a loadout, how the stuff was all going to fit on the pallets. And of course, he had his computer out with his spreadsheet. I suspect he still lives in spreadsheets. <laughs> and uh, 
But he, there was only, he would point at a piece of, of equipment in, that's in the shipping crates and then point at a, uh, one of the airmen and say, put that over there. Then he would go back to his spreadsheet and then he would find another piece of equipment and say, go carry that over there and put it on that pallet. And I'm watching this because, you know, he's a new lieutenant. He doesn't understand the relationship of NCOs and airmen and all that yet. And so I walk over. I said, you want to make this happen? Stand aside. <laughs> Sergeant Satan will fix this. <laughs> Y'all get busy. <laughs> all of a sudden, everybody was moving boxes. <laughs> Jim, two things. First of all, you told that story last time. And so I'm not sure it's going to survive the edit process of this oh. one. <laughs> two, I, I question your timing. JR just said something nice about working with me. And then you got to just come and undercut it. Like that's, uh, you know, that does not get you favorite yeah, guest yeah. status here. I, I would just add, well, you know, he really learned from it. <laughs> My best story about LT was in Montana. We were doing a, a missile silo. Uh, we were up there. Matter of fact, I even got credit for doing sorts because we did a training video on how to do sorts. And uh, somehow you got us even credit for it. Actually, I think it was TO, how to update the technical order, which I was multimedia. We didn't have any TOs, by the way, which was a pain the rest of my career because they kept saying, well, you're qualified for that. <laughs> And I'm like, well, how did I get qualified for that? I remember we did a video on it. But it was really funny because working with LT, knowing that he was from Yale, so obviously you have to tease him. And he knows I'm, I'm extremely right of, of a conservative, and he wasn't. And we were discussing it one night, and I'll never forget, we're in the middle of a, a Montana bar, and he was telling me, he goes, no, no, I know where you're at. I'm like going, yeah, you have no clue. You know, I'm a Texan. I'm as, I'm as bad as it gets. He goes, I get that. And he goes, we're solving problems. We're drinking beer. And like we told each other the next day, if we could remember what we discussed, <laughs> we could have set the world uh, right that night. But one of the things we were talking about was men marrying men. And we we're going back and forth about that. And he was trying to make a point. It was so funny because he goes, all right, look, wait a minute. Just look. Me and you're married and we want kids. And he yells this out and I'm looking around <laughs> in Montana at this bar going, we're going to die before. <laughs> wow. I said, I was like, oh my God, this is over. The LT has killed me. This is going to be on my tombstone. We survived. Remember, that was in the, in what, 95? That was kind of a, a crazy time, but it was like, oh, we're going to die. But it was funny because, like I said, the next day we were very competitive about if we could have remembered what we were drinking and discussing <laughs> to solve the world's problems. We were ahead of our time. <laughs> yeah. And Jim, speaking of uh, LT's disregard for the chain of command, <laughs> just to round out the discussion, I distinctly remember back when we were doing all this Photoshop stuff and, you know, all these, these different exercise requirements. LT, I don't know if you remember this, but you used to beeline to me directly all the time for, Aaron Johnson, can you just do this real quick? Can you, <laughs> and I'm like, you need to fill out a work order or this needs to go through so-and-so because I've got all this stuff ahead of you. No, could you just knock it out real quick. Just get this done. <laughs> no, I do not remember that. I do. <laughs> all right, I'll build, I'll do it real quick, you know. <laughs> so I became like the secret weapon for, for Skid, right? <laughs> yeah, that was good. I remember those. Was, those are good times. I was curious what you guys think of the name change of Vandenberg. It is now Vandenberg Space Force Base. It is no longer Vandenberg Air Force Base. 
Yeah. Yeah, they, they yeah, changed. It's changed. It's gone. It was always a spacey base for me. It was. <laughs> it was always. It was a space base. A lot of people who, who listen to this as a, as a combat camera podcast may not understand if they haven't been around the military that our, our jobs were not always in the combat camera career field. Sometimes we worked for other commands, had other missions. You know, I was at uh, U.S. Space Command back in the mid 80s uh, when it oversaw NORAD and Air Force Space Command and the Space Warfare Center, lots of those space-based things. It was run by an Air Force general. I, I can still remember the things that he wanted to happen in space are really things that have only over, over the last five or six years are actually coming to fruition now. Launch on demand and things to replace broken satellites, uh, space space radar. They were talking, making Space Command its own Air Force way back when we were at Vandenberg. Was it, was it like to be a militarized version of NASA? That was kind of the idea? Pretty much is what I see happening because you got to understand, there was a lot of things that was happening that even Vandenberg, because we had our classified sites, they would do launch and we didn't do any video. We were like, going, I wonder what that was. And, yeah. you know, it was, <laughs> it was those things that didn't happen that happened. You're like going, cool. And we were part of, one of the biggest things that happened during our time was the Iridium, if mm -hmm. you remember, and that was putting in all the cell relays up there. And we launched a lot of those, which is where we're at today about GPS and everything else. You remember those used to explode? I remember, I remember I was on a one of those helicopters. It was me and I forget who, it was probably Albert, right? Sherlock. Sitting next to me on, a, on one of those UH-1s orbiting one of the space launch complexes and they lit off one of those uh i think it was a titan that went up and exploded <laughs> and set half of the base on fire <laughs> it was either me or Gerloff. we're the ones that did that little tyler mount on, on the mount of that uh, helo to shoot that that was a little scary because i remember sitting in that aircraft orbiting you know, and this thing launches and it starts going off a couple of degrees in the wrong direction. They light it off. And I remember this ball, it was like a, the, the world's biggest Roman candle, right? Just this thing explodes. And I remember feeling the heat of the explosion in the aircraft, right? Three miles away. You could feel, the, you know, it was just, and then when you're, when you're in an aircraft and you got pilots saying, oh shit, and banking <laughs> you know, away and you're like, I remember going, the, the thoughts that were going through my mind was, okay, I'm completely helpless. There's nothing I can do about this. And I'm in a tin can full of jet fuel and there's a ball of flame over there. <laughs> so, so, yeah, that was, and I, yeah, memories. You understand that. When I was at U.S. Space Command, there was a, there was a mindset, um, not Air Force Space Command, but U.S. Space Command, because with the, under the umbrella with NORAD and, the Space Warfare Center and things. I mean, you're rubbing shoulders with astronauts every day, um, people who have already been to space. When there's uh, launches coming up and things, you know, there's, there's a lot of focus, which you wouldn't have around the regular Air Force. And then uh, being up around the mountain when there was going to be a launch um, from at the time, the Soviet Union or uh, China, or I think North Korea had one missile that they were playing with at the time. But it was great to be the, the guy behind the camera, getting to experience it, watch it through other people, of course. You know, we're not, we're not hands-on ourselves, but, but uh, we're there to document it so that it can be either put into historical archives or used for 
sharing with the public what's going on. Jim, I thought that was going to dovetail in some story about how you broke NORAD. I didn't break NORAD. What I did was uh, we had a, a problem. The OSI came to me and they said that they had a, a problem with uh, contractor malfeasance. There were two communication modules, one located somewhere outside of the continental United States and one that was located um, at the Space Warfare Center um, in, uh, in Colorado. And they, it was basically a radar site um, communicating uh, what it saw to NORAD and the Space Warfare Center and things. But these were the only two units. They were supposedly identical. And I was told um, that I could not take uh, electronic flash into the room where the communication system was because of the electromagnetic pulse off the flash would damage the equipment. So rather the room had a copper shield on it to protect it from outside electrical interference. So I took just a hot light with me, a 150 watt bulb with a little aluminum reflector on it. And uh, we pulled one of the circuit boards out, laid it on the table. And I could see where there was spare solder and things that had spread out on the board. And that was what they wanted photographed. And I reached over and I turned on the hot light and uh, the system in the room went down. I had busted the EMP just with that, with that <laughs> light. So that has to be reported to the Joint Chiefs of Staff in the Pentagon. <laughs> now a major radar system in the United States has lost contact with Cheyenne Mountain. And other than by telephone, can't report what's going on. So they, they were passing my name around at the JCS that night. <laughs> oh, just by the way, contractor had the pictures handed to him at the trial and capitulated when the pictures were handed to him. They had to <laughs> refund the government a whole bunch of money. So yay for us. I was on a trip to NORAD when we got to see these, uh, we went to this room with these um, Cray supercomputers. Do you remember that? They were out at the Warfare Center. Those weren't at the mountain. Yeah, it was off-site. Yeah, we, we went to the mountain too, but it was, yeah, it was off-site. They just sat there in a room, empty. Yeah, liquid-cooled. It was Star Trek. Yeah. <laughs> they weren't hooked up. <laughs> they were just sitting there. And they were brought there because the military manned orbiting system that was uh, supposed to go before Challenger blew up, mm -hmm. they were going to start launching out of Annenberg. They were start launching the shuttle. And this was the computers that were going to be used to work with the shuttle. Mm basically a replica of what they have down in Houston. Part of that system was two Cray supercomputers. Um, they're beautiful to look at, but that's all they ever did was they sat in this room because they canceled the shuttle. And I wonder, I wonder what the power of those things are compared to like these, the, the latest phones oh, today. That's so crazy. Well, I will tell you, Jim, that uh, comic camera changed a bit from when you were in uh, just being photographer. After 9-11, we had to make some adjustments because you got to remember we had decades after Vietnam of just, uh, like I like to refer to it, exercises. And you could get up and walk into the middle of a field at Vandenberg to get that reverse angle. The only time that it ever felt like you were even scary is if you were miles gear and a beep went off. But when you actually got out into the uh, combat zone that we went in after 9-11, we had to make some adjustments. Every prisoner that went to Guantanamo Bay was pretty much escorted by us. We had to document their process of transportation and all the way through. We had to document all of the stuff that we were doing. We were with special forces, 
And yeah. even at the end, uh, my career broke through the seals where we would go in on, on these raids and be third or fourth man in. You carried an M4 on one side, a nine millimeter on your chest, and a camera on the left side, depending on what hands you were. And we had to practice transition with uh, different specialized organizations that taught us how to work both between the weapon and the camera system. Because the point was, if we came out of that with no imagery, why were we there? They always looked at us as a risk. We were a risk going into this operation because we were unfamiliar. So if they put us into that, we had to have a reason. It was certainly our intent when I was in that we were trained to provide audiovisual in a threat environment. But to your point, JR, those were not the years where things were going on. And so there's a lot more story there to tell. Uh, I could go on, like I said, I was, my privilege was to retire, you know, as the chief of combat camera, because to sit in there and run that and look at it, get the flying slots back up to 9D to do the operations and just continue to, to do what we had to do in the fights that we had to do it with. And JR, when did you actually retire? Don't make me do the math. 2011. Uh, JR, you should come back. Let's plan that for next year. I want to hear more about uh, how Combat Camera changed over the years. Hey, I didn't even get to the best story ever. Was you riding a horse? McAllister set us up where we could go ride because they had to move the horses uh, lower because we were at Estes Park, if I remember correctly. Mm -hmm. And and we were riding through, and you know, I'm wearing a cowboy hat, hanging out with the Wrangler in the back, and he looks at it and goes, "How good of riders do you think these people are?" I had John Noon on a horse. I had LT on a horse. I'm like, well, they're in the saddle. He goes, why don't we race beside each side of them and the horses they're on will follow? You think they'll fall off? I go, I have no clue. So we did. And as the horses took off, and all I could hear when the horse was running by was, at ease, at ease. <laughs> I was dying. I was like going, I never knew a military horse. <laughs> and John Noon looked like someone shot him because he was from the city <laughs> and had never, never rode a horse like that. It took off. JR and I had to go into Estes Park. We were shooting a daily videos for a conference, singles conference up at Estes Park. It was a tough one. You told this story last time. <laughs> I know where this one's going. JR and I were down in town shooting. He was getting video. I was getting stills. And on the way back, there was a brewery. And I said, pull in there. And JR says, we got to get back. I said, pull in there. I'm buying you a beer, man. So we, we pull into the brewery and we ask, what kind of beer you got? And the guy gave us each seven shots on the little wooden thing. He said, here, try them. <laughs> so we're like, we're in a hurry, man. <laughs> noop, 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 noop. <laughs> right down. And then we got the souvenir Estes Park Brewery pint glass of our favorite beer. And, and we had to drink that down really fast. And and we had to hustle back because LT needed the video and uh, we needed to eat before they closed the, the dining facility. <laughs> we put the glasses in your camera bag. Yeah. And we went off to eat and LT was looking for another tape, seeing if there's another tape. And he opened it up and there's two wet pint glasses of beer sitting in the, <laughs> in the camera case. I, just thought, I remember all that because Jim was very nice and told us, he goes, look, guys, we're out here. We're in civvies. You don't have to shake. So I thought that was really awesome. <laughs> so we weren't shaving for a couple of days. And I went by by him and he's, he's clean shaven. I'm like, Jim, you said we weren't shaving. He goes, if I don't shave, I'll lose my face in the fur. <laughs> <laughs> so I went, okay. In the fur. He goes, I got to maintain it. Oh, that was a fun trip, though. Yeah, it was. I did it five times. You did five <laughs> times to Estes Park? 
Yeah, I, I got Captain Erskine. Did you know him? Very well. I remember oh, Erskine. Yeah, yeah, I remember Captain Erskine was very creative. He was a true uh, VI officer. When he came, you know, not saying that you were, but he had all these creative ideas. And we climbed up, it was so funny, to 13,000 feet and sat in a field for like hours trying to get animals because he wanted animals for the open. Uh -huh. And then we were moving around and there's two elk fighting in the middle. So I grab my 50-pound beta cam and slide down this hill. And I, I don't know if you've ever been at 13,000 feet, <laughs> but when I got down there, I'm videotaping these two elk fighting. It was like an awesome video. And they're up there, come on up after the elk ran off. Well, it took me 30, 40 seconds to get down. It took me almost an hour to get back up. <laughs> I'm laying on my camera. I swear I was dying. And that animals that we got, we're all back at Estes Park because they weren't up there. They were hanging out there eating at the trash can. The brewery. <laughs> they were eating every live animal he wanted to get was at Estes Park. We had to, we didn't have to go anywhere. Yeah, I went up there and saw you that year after I retired. I got, I still got the pictures because they built the van. Yeah, that's when we had the TV van. And rather than having to haul all the equipment, they just made someone drive it up. Yeah, it was Terry Fail's van. Every time he was in there, I had to I had to put in my profanity sound buttons in because I, I wouldn't know what a camera mover was if I didn't have profanity in front of it. That was <laughs> that, that made it go. Oh, guys, it was a lot of fun going back. It's always good catching up with you guys. Likewise, thanks for having me. Hey, thanks, LT. Season nine continues. Thanks for sticking with us. If you're new to the podcast, I hope you'll check out some other episodes. It's easy to peruse the entire catalog at the website, blowthelineoneword.biz. That's B-I-Z. All episodes of the podcast are also now on IMDb, so you can cross-reference the film credits of my guests. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and rate us if you like what you hear. If you've got questions or comments, you can send email to skid, S-K-I-D, at blowthelineoneword.biz. If you're on Facebook, you can find photos and other behind-the-scenes materials at Podcast Below the Line. And finally, you can follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram. It's at Pod Below the Line. I also want to plug Fred Johnson's website, thisweekinphoto.com. It's been running continuously for the last 10 years, and as advertised, it's about all things photo. Thanks to Curtis Five for our music and John Juan for our logo. The logo is available on t-shirts, mugs, and stickers at redbubble.com. Loyal listeners, you are much appreciated. If you're enjoying this season, tell your friends. We'll be back again next week.